wanting to imagine for a moment. It's the middle of the night. You're woken by a noise downstairs. You just can hear something rustling uh, somewhere in your home. You go downstairs to investigate and you find that someone is in your house. You see one person, then you see the shadow of another person go past. They're trashing your house. They're breaking your belongings. You try to stop them. They strike you. You fall on the floor. They kick you again and again and again. You manage to get up and escape through the front door. Amazingly, you see a policeman just happening to be wandering by on the other side of the street. You run towards him. He sees you there, bruised and bleeding. But instead of helping you, he kicks you in the stomach, leaving you winded on the floor and then joins in with the people ransacking your house. Where do you turn to when the very people supposed to be doling out justice are actually working with the wicked? Where do you go for justice when the powers that be deny you justice? Well, that's what this psalm is all about. And I want to argue that this is a psalm for our time, really. As I read it, it reminded me uh, of a a time a few years ago. I read an article in a newspaper. Uh, In 2001, 69-year-old street preacher... Harry Hammond was assaulted uh, in Bournemouth while street preaching. He had a placard which had uh, some choice words. His placard talked about homosexuality, uh, but he was physically assaulted by people in the street. The police arrived on the scene to find him with blood on his face, and he was arrested and taken into custody. The people who assaulted him were set free. He was fined £300 and ordered to destroy his sign. He died only a few months afterwards, uh, believe partly through the ordeal of going through all that. His case has, always, has been taken up posthumously, but it's always been upheld that he did something wrong. Now, we might want to say that he was misguided in his choice of topics to have on his placard, but he was a believer, and he was trying to tell people the gospel. But instead of being protected by the authorities, he was actually prosecuted by the authorities. Well, has it got any easier in the past 17 years? Well, I think we can see that employment tribunals are increasingly deciding against Christians. We've got a situation where the Speaker of the House of Commons said only a couple of weeks ago that other rights should trump those of religious freedom in certain cases. We need to understand in our time how we respond to a hostile environment because our environment is getting more and more hostile. Now David, who wrote this psalm, he knew what it was like to live in that hostile environment. At least twice in his life, he found himself on the wrong side of the powers that be. One time with Saul and his advisors, when Saul decided that he was going to chase after David and kill him, even though David had done nothing wrong. And then later on, his son Absalom had a coup, and David was forced to flee again. In neither of those cases had he done anything wrong. But in both those cases, he was hunted down like a criminal. Well, this is David's response to the injustice of the powers that be of his land. And we're going to see it in three points. The first one is unjust judges. Let me read to you again verses 1 to 5. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. 
They have the venom, venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. Now to get our heads around this passage, we need to understand what that word gods means uh, there in verse 1. You see, the word gods sometimes in the Bible is used for human beings, sort of mighty ones. Jesus makes very much the same point in John 10. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheets. So when he's calling himself the son of God and they're accusing him of saying something wrong, this is how he answered them. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? What he's doing there, he's quoting another psalm, Psalm 82, and he points us to the fact that there are this group of people there that are called gods. But here it's really clear from the context that they're men. Well here the same is true in Psalm 58. That it's men that it's referring to. And we know who these men are because of what they do. Do you see there in verse 1? Do you uh, indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Who these people are? Well, they're the judges of the land. They're the, the authorities that were sort of justice on the ground. So when you hear judges, lose the image of sort of old guy in a wig. That's not what it's talking about here. These were the men who were responsible in their communities for seeing that the law was kept in the land. If there were disputes between people about what the law meant, they were there to arbitrate. They were there to go between them. They were justice on the ground for most people in a day when there wasn't a police force. There wasn't sort of a policeman you could go to. You'd go to the judge. And also, they were the kingdom and nation on the ground in every community. Uh, applying one national law, the law that God had given them. They sort of united the nation by applying the same things everywhere. But what David is saying here is that in his day, these men who are responsible for justice are themselves unjust. He poses it as a question that he then answers. Do you indeed decree what is right? No. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. These men who stand in the place of God administering justice on his behalf to the mere children of men, as they might see it, are not judging rightly. They're devising wickedness in their hearts rather than working out what righteousness is. So think about situations like in the days of Al Capone, where Al Capone had all the, the judges and all the policemen, he was paying them, he was bribing them, and he was sort of above justice. Think about situations like corrupt states, where court rulings can be bought by the rich. So the judges aren't there actually bringing justice, they're just there to line their pockets or to to play politics. They're putting certain people above the law. So hands that should be doling out justice on the land are instead doling out violence on the earth. And we're given further description of them later on in in the verses, aren't we, 3 to 5. They're called the wicked, who are estranged from the womb, soaked in lies. It's sort of hyperbole, it's, it's extreme language, isn't it? Because you can't speak lies from birth, can you? Because you can't speak from birth. But the point is clear. These men are wicked to the core. They've been wicked since day one. And now, these men are in charge of justice in the land. 
Now let's not forget how big a deal this is when those sorts of situations happen. Having wicked men in charge of justice is bad news for everyone, isn't it? It was bad news for David as he faced a life on the run for no good reason. In danger for whatever town he stayed in. If you think about it, that's probably why David spent so much of his time abroad. He was actually safer with pagan judges than with his own judges in his homeland. It was bad news for David. But it was bad news, if you think, in Jesus' day as well. Humanly speaking, think about it. Why did Jesus end up on the cross? It was an unjust judiciary. It was unjust judges, if you like, the Sanhedrin, who put Jesus on the cross as they wrongly found him guilty. So the sin that David is talking about here is actually the sin, really, one of the sins that put Jesus on the cross. People turning a blind eye, people ignoring the law and following their own personal agendas. No wonder that he compares them to snakes with fangs, poison in their teeth, preying on innocent victims, untamable even by the best snake charmers of the land, impervious to reason as though they're deaf, unstoppable seemingly. Well, what possible recourse do you have when the very lawmakers of the land are against you? Well, verses 6 to 9 tell us ultimate justice in verses 6 to 9. Let me read them to you again. O God, break the teeth in their mouth. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, where the green or ablaze may sweep them away. Where does David go to in the face of these unjust judges? David prays. That's actually what we have in these verses. David prays. He prays for the only power that could possibly step in when the very legal system of the land is corrupt. He goes to God to change things. What does he pray for? Well, the first thing that he prays for is that God will break the instruments of oppression of the unjust judges. You notice there, it's the things that they're using to attack them at first that he asks God to break. He prays that God would break the poisonous teeth of the vipers that he's just been talking about. He prays that he would remove the biting fangs from the predatory lions. He prays that the arrows that they're firing at the innocent would be blunted. So first and foremost, where he starts with is, is get rid of the ways that they are oppressing the people. But he goes further, doesn't he? That God would remove these wicked men altogether. Now be ready here for some graphic images uh, as he explains. The first is that they would be like water running away. The only sort of situation I could think where we sort of meet this in daily life is that situation where you spill something on a table. Uh, you know, and you, you, you think that you've got the water, you watch it sort of slowly go across and then you discover the puddle on the floor. Uh, the water's managed to escape. It's gone so quickly that it's just gone. It runs away before you can stop it. He's praying they would just disappear like somehow that water runs off the table. He prays that they would be like snails dissolved into slime. That's a pretty horrific image. I remember being on uh, beach missions years ago 
and there'd been a, a boy there who was a bit obsessed with slugs. Uh, there was lots of slugs in the hall where we were staying. And he would sort of play with them with, with salt. I don't think we had quite big problems. But you just find these sort of trails of, uh, of slime there. Uh, we've been putting out slug pellets in our back garden because you uh, have, uh, they've been eating our, our roses and cherry trees. And you just find these trails of, it's, it's really quite disgusting. But the image he's got there is that they would just dissolve. It's really quite a graphic image, isn't it, as you think about it. He's praying that they would be like a stillborn child, never seeing the sun. Now, if you think about it, what he said about them is that they are wicked from the womb, right from the beginning. Well, he's praying here that they would never leave the womb, that they would never come out. He prays as well that they'd be swept away like kindling from a fire. That's really the image with the thorns uh, that it talks about there at uh, the end of verse 9. It's sort of the image of using thorns to light a fire. But before the fire's even got going, the thorns have, have blown away. It's like trying to light a fire in the wind, if you like, just constantly being blown away. Now, these are really quite shocking images, aren't they? And not the sort of things you might want to talk about, perhaps normally on a Sunday morning. But things are in a shocking state of affairs, aren't they? If we think this is overkill, then we haven't understood the severity and the scandal of what's happening. When you can't trust the judges to protect the innocent, who can you trust? So in one sense, he's praying for the right outcome, isn't he? He's praying that what's general about God's world, that evil is punished and good is rewarded, becomes specific to this situation. We all know the frustration, don't we, of stories that don't end right, where the the baddie doesn't get his comeuppance and the goodie doesn't win. I don't know if you're, I'm sure I've used this as an illustration before in a different way, but I watched No Country for Old Men, uh, the film. And it sort of ends without the bad guy getting caught. And you're left with this awful feeling of frustration uh, at the end of it. Apparently, I think last time I used this as an illustration, somebody told me that that was the point uh, of the film. But you get that frustrated feeling. Because we know how it should end. It ends with justice. That's how it should end. Well, he's praying that that would happen. And we also know that that's what happens at the end too. There will be this reckoning, won't there? There will be a time when the wicked are swept away. And it's God's will that this happen at the end of time, at the end of history. That's how we'll finish it. But it's not God's will that we take matters into our own hands, as we see David praying here. David, you see, isn't saying, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go sweep them away. I'll show them. He isn't going, this is what I'll do. I'll break their teeth. Actually, he's leaving it to God in this situation where he's being persecuted, where he's being hunted down like a criminal. He's taking it to God and leaving it with him, which is entirely consistent with the New Testament, isn't it? Romans 12, 19 and 20. Again, on the back of your notice sheets, beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We are not to be the instigators of divine justice on others. Whatever the burning coals are there, the point is clear. We are not to avenge ourselves, 
but to leave it to God. In the context of Romans, that probably includes the state. He's going to go on to talk about that, the way that the the government functions in that way. But even in cases like David's, where the government isn't functioning that way, it's not for us to avenge ourselves. We leave it to the wrath of God, the right ending on all evil. We leave it to him. But there's also another ending that's right. We've had uh, unjust judges, ultimate justice, and just to break the pattern slightly, uh, ultimate vindication, verses 10 and 11. Let me read them to you again. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Here we see that the righteous are avenged and bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, it can be a figure of speech, but again, the imagery is clear, isn't it? There's so much blood of the enemy being spilled in this vengeance that you can bathe your feet in the pool. It's an image of total destruction of an opposing army that's come to destroy you. Now again, that sounds very strong, doesn't it? But it fits again with what we see in the New Testament. We see similar images. Revelation 14, 19 to 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, wine presses were trodden with feet, here producing blood that goes out for about 180 miles in each direction. That's a huge amount, as high as a horse's bridle. From here, if you like, all the way to London, it's a huge image of ultimate defeat of God's enemies. And here, if you like, God treading the wine press is bathing his feet in the blood of his enemies. It's a similar imagery to what David is using. It's a picture of of victory over enemies. But I'm guessing to most of us this sounds pretty alien and pretty disgusting, uh, really. I'm guessing really there are three reasons that we think it's uh, pretty disgusting and alien. The first reason is that we're not accustomed to the horrors of war. We're not accustomed to the horrors of war. We're sanitised from what through most of human history has been a normal part of life. War. We haven't seen... Uh, Most of us, I imagine, people die around us. We haven't, so many as I imagine, had friends and family killed in brutal battles. It's hard for us to understand why the total defeat of an enemy is a good thing. We don't understand the imagery of blood being part and parcel of the outcome of war and the outcome of victory in war. I mean, most of us, if you're anything like me, we don't even like blood at the butchers, do we? We're so sanitised from this part of life. So I think that's partly why we find this so strange and disgusting. The second reason I think we find this strange and disgusting is that we're not accustomed to the horrors of sin. We're not shocked by this because we don't understand how horrific sin is. That it would need to be punished in such an extreme way. We have a sanitised view of sin. Sin for us sometimes, it can just be, you know, we seem to treat it as though, well, it's sad, but it can't be helped. But that's not the way that the Bible talks about it, is it? Sin is open war on the God of heaven. 
Sin is provocation of the living God. Every sin, if you like, is like a pearl harbour, goading God into action against sinners. And if we think that sounds extreme, then we've not really yet understood sin. See, God is the most loving being in existence. He's the very definition of love. Yet how do we treat him? Well, when love became man, we killed him. Every sin we commit reminds us that left to ourselves, we're no different from the man who nailed Jesus to the cross. And we don't get this because we don't realise how horrific sin is. So we don't realize, we're sanitised to war, we don't, uh, we're not accustomed to the horrors of war, we're not accustomed to the horrors of sin. And I think also we don't understand it because we're not accustomed to the horrors of persecution. We haven't been in David's situation, on, his, on, on the run for his life, hunted down by the very officials that should have protected him under the law. We haven't been in the situation that Christians have been through most of history. Facing being thrown to lions by the state. Facing being burnt at the stake simply for being Christians. We haven't been in the situation Christians face in certain parts of the world. Facing prison. Facing execution. Facing torture. Facing the torture and murder of our families. Just for being a Christian. And think about it. In this this circumstance, this is being done by his own country. Not by some foreign invaders, his own people. If we were in those situations, I think these images wouldn't be quite as horrific as we think they are. They would at the very least be understandable. The picture here that we have is final victory, final vindication. It will be shown before everyone that we were not a criminal. It will be shown that uh, Christians were not enemies of the state, that David really was in the right The enemies of God will finally be shown for what they are and defeated. And when these things happen, it will make mankind sit up and listen. Look at verse 11 again. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. When justice is done, people see the reward of the righteous, of righteousness. They recognise somehow that there is a God working behind the scenes, behind the events of man. Now that's not the whole gospel, but it's a start, isn't it? There is an ultimate purpose in this for mankind. When we see justice done, it's supposed to remind us of the God of justice. There's something almost evangelistic when the righteous are vindicated and the wicked are cast down. When we see around the world evils like Nazi, uh, Nazism and tyrannical communism, when they're brought to nothing, it's supposed to remind us that there is an agency behind history. That there is someone tempering evil. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. So bearing all this in mind... I know probably you've got a question that you've, you've got in your mind. Is this a prayer that we should be praying? Is this a prayer that a Christian can pray? There's been some pretty horrific stuff in it. Well, I want to say yes and no. Yes, we can pray it in the way that we pray for an end to injustice. 
That's one of the things that we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer, if you think about it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that God's justice would be done on earth, aren't we? And if we think about it, we're also praying for that final justice. For that final reckoning. So we can pray for the end of injustice. And we also see that there are Christians elsewhere in scripture who do pray for God to step in. Saints praying for that final justice. So Revelation 6 verse 10. This is the saints who've been martyred, crying out in heaven. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? If we understand it that way, then we can pray this prayer as a Christian. So yes, we can pray this. But on the other hand, no. There, is, there are things we need to think about as we pray this. There has been a change from the time then to the time now. Our nation is not Israel, as it was for David. We don't have judges whose duty it is to apply God's law in the same national sense. And in that sense, we don't struggle against flesh and blood in the same way that David did. Our kingdom is spiritual, whereas David had physical enemies to a physical kingdom. So the flesh and blood that stands before us when these things happen, that, that person is not our enemy in the same way. In fact, they themselves are enemies of a greater, uh, sorry, they themselves are captives of a greater enemy. An enemy that will use them to his own ends and whims. Paul writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So instead, we're to be gentle, we're to forgive. We're to bless, we're not to curse. We pray that God would rescue them from their captivity. We pray that God would destroy his enemies by making them his friends. Abraham Lincoln famously said, do I not destroy my enemies if I make them my friend? We don't pray that people would dissolve like snails, but we pray that evil would, destroy, uh, would dissolve like a snail, that injustice would be swept away by the whirlwind, and ultimately, we look to Christ, don't we? How did Christ respond in this situation? Well, Christ prayed on the cross, didn't he? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Christ, who faced injustice head on, who faced such evil from the people around him, forgave the very men who murdered him. And Jesus is the one who enables our enemies to become his friends by taking the wrath of God on himself. The first anger that these corrupt judges merited was poured out on Christ. He was crushed. He was swept away by the wrath of God. And now, if you think about it, we bathe in his blood. Not the blood of a crushing defeat, but the blood of a wonderful victory won over sin. A blood that cleanses us. A blood that has kept people going under persecution. Revelation 12 verse 11. And they conquered him. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. A blood that those facing hardship have washed their robes in and made themselves clean. Revelation 7.14 I said to him, Sir, you know. 
And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He destroys his enemies by making them his friends. But that said, we shouldn't lose the edge of this psalm, should we? If we don't get angry at injustice, then there's something wrong with us. If we're unmoved by the persecution of our brothers and sisters across the world, then we need a bigger heart. If we don't long for a reckoning when justice will be done and God will be vindicated, then we haven't understood the horror that sin still exists in our world. So where do we turn to in all this? To despair? No. To cynicism? No. To our own ability to fix the problem? No. We turn to the one who's really in control. We turn to God. That's not to say we do nothing. We're not at the stage in our part of the world where Christians are fugitives to justice, where the scenarios that we talked about at the beginning are happening. But we do have recourse to the courts. We do have recourse to Parliament. And we should prayerfully use those means while we have them. But our ultimate recourse is God. And unlike the courts... Unlike human governments and judges, he will never fail us. So where do you turn to when the very people supposed to be doling out justice are actually working with the wicked? Will you entrust yourself to the ultimate judge, one who never failed and who has faced injustice himself and shed his own blood for people like you and me? Let's pray.